in the Word with you. I pray that your hearts are open, and I pray that your minds are alert, that you're ready to um, be honest with yourself and honest with God, and to be honest with you, I think I dropped my notes. Nope, there they are. Yes, I have a lot of other things in here too that probably shouldn't be in here right now. But if you want to grab your Bibles, please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to continue with our series, um, The Nativity, The Arrival of Jesus. And um, like the first century when he came, there's a lot of questions. So many, 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 many questions about his identity, about his mission, about his work, about what it means to follow him. And there's something that um, I didn't really realize until this passed through studying this chapter, that in the first century there had become an elevated view or opinion about the work of angels. Now I know that... that, um, we read our Bibles today, and in today's culture, we almost, and probably myself, are guilty of downplaying the role of angels. We do know that angels in the, in the Word of God are ministering spirits. They're messengers. Um, a lot of times when you read that word messenger in the Bible, that's really a word angel. And then when you read sometimes the word angel, you get the word messenger. I know that um, in the book of Revelation, each church, it said to the angel in the church of and then write. And so that to the messenger, and some translations say that, that that's the pastor. So you see that there's this, this different kind of things going on when you read the Bible and you see that this word messenger or this word angel. But what had happened in the early church and when this book was, was written, most likely late 50s through the 60s, and I'm not talking 19, I'm talking first century, like there was no two numbers before it was just 60, <laughs> okay? So right in there, we're dealing with a period of time about 25 to 30 years after Jesus when a lot of the people that had followed Jesus were still alive, were still um, leading, were still doing their thing, but it's starting to get a little bit older. Some other voices started to come in that second generation after what we call the apostles. That second generation was now starting to be mentored and moved forward and Paul was traveling all over that part of the world, appointing elders in every church and doing that. And from time to time, there started to have these, these teachings come in to the church that, that weren't what Jesus had taught and weren't what the apostles had taught. They were not founded upon the Old Testament scriptures. And so they began to become a lot of erroneous teaching took place. And that is, in fact, why much of your or all of your New Testament started to be written down. Because you remember that the Jewish way of teaching was a rabbi would have a yoke of teaching, a set of teachings that he would verbally communicate and model for his disciples, and then they would learn that yoke of teaching, and then they too would then start to speak that. So it was Jewish speaking, what their way of learning was, was very um, verbal, okay? And they would pass it down that way. But the Greek way of learning and understanding was through the written word. And so when it happened that these Jewish rabbis, they didn't want their teachings corrupted, so they never wrote them. Because they didn't want anybody else to write it down and say they wrote it. And if it was coming out of their mouth, they were safe. That was the Jewish way. But the more Greek way was, hey, i got to write this stuff down and then send it out. So as the church began to be very Gentile in its makeup, 
the apostles start thinking, wait a minute, there's all this talk about Jesus. There's all this rhetoric about Jesus. There's all these things being said that, man, on, as these newer people and more and more people are coming into the church, there seems to be more and more bad teaching. And we're elevating some people and we're putting down other people. We're forgetting some things and we're recreating or restating erroneously other things. And so it began to be very confusing. And so as the apostles began to age and the church was very, becoming very Greek in its, its kind of makeup, at the time they started to write. They started to write so that you can have it written and you can have it given to you and you know who handed it to you. And then you can read it, and then you can give it to the next church. And it began that they would start to circulate these letters, these epistles to the different churches. And so what we're going to read today in the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people that had been dispersed into Gentile land. Okay, It's as though if you are an English-speaking person and God moves you out of the country somewhere else, places you somewhere else, and you then got a letter from someone that you loved and cherished and it was written in English and you got that and you can read and you're like, oh, now I can understand because I'm going to church and listen to a language and I'm not getting it, but I, oh, I get, I get this. I get this. And you would cherish that and you would pass it around to different English-speaking people and that's what was taking place. And because of this elevated view of angels, some actually started to believe that Jesus, the man, was just another run-of-the-mill, average angel. And that was it. And so the author of the book of Hebrews is like, time out, we've got to fix this. I've got to lay out for you exactly who Jesus is. And how he did this is really wonderful. Especially because, remember, these are Jews dispersed. Okay? These are Jews dispersed. So what did they really treasure? They really treasured their scriptures. They really treasured what we would call today our Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. And so what the author of Hebrews has done in this first chapter, and then as it leaks out, we won't look at this today, but as it goes into chapter 2, is what he does is he says, let me tell you who Jesus is based upon what the Father has revealed to us through the prophets as recorded in the Old Testament. So what you have in Hebrews chapter 1 is a good old-fashioned Bible study. A good old-fashioned, let's go back and see what happened. And because they believed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, but they were confused, and some of you are looking at me today going, they actually thought that? Yeah, they actually did. They thought that Messiah was actually an angel. Oh, See, by the time we get to today, we've got this a little turned around. See, they had a really hard time accepting the fact that Jesus was, just, was human. That, that human component was very, very hard for them because of what Jesus had done, the things that he said. He forgave people's sins. He did all these miracles. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He came back from the dead. And they believed all of those things. And so they were like, because he's so amazing, because he is so powerful, he is so wise. There is no way that Jesus could be a man. He has to be something else. So they thought, well, he's God. But, well, you can't say that, really. They struggled with saying that he's God. So what is a, kind of an in-between thought? Well, if he's not a man and he's not really God, then perhaps Jesus is an angel. After all, the Old Testament is repeatedly saying the angel of the Lord, right? And so they could take their Old Testament scriptures and go, oh, well, over and over again, we have this 
place where it's the angel of the Lord is speaking. So let's just take that from the Old Testament, from our Bible, and place that word in the Bible on this person. Now you can be a wonderful God-fearing, Jesus-worshiping, Jesus-following, saved-going-to-heaven person and have his identity wrong and be mistaken. And so I'm wondering, today, those of you that value the Bible, believe that it's the Word of God, believe that it's authoritative, believe that it is a source of truth for us, yet you've kind of taken some words from it and misunderstood the identity of Jesus and need to grow in your understanding of him. And in fact, I would venture that all of us, including myself, would say that there is room to grow in my understanding of who exactly Jesus is. And that in any relationship, we're in this progressive understanding of that person. I would say, even after married to my wife for 29 years, that I'm still learning about her. I'm still learning about how to treat her and how to be a husband and to do those things. We're still, as we are in relationship with one another, we're always going to be learning more and more about each other. I, I learned some really funny things about a member of our church this morning. I mean, I, I think a, a member of our church who will go nameless is really funny. And I wish I could have been with him as a kid because that would, probably would have been one of the biggest parties of my life. Um, and he knows who he is and he's laughing right now. But that, that was just, that was good. That's good stuff. Uh, I am amazed. We need to like have an interview or so. You need to tell your story, bro. But yeah, but not to the kids because they might go do that too and we don't want them to do that. Okay. All right. We have all kinds of fun. All kinds of fun. This individual that I'm referring to today, you know, just a side note, uh, he decided that it would be the good idea because he was dared to do this, to jump on the back of a car and to ride that car down the road and then because it was going to go too far, he would get in trouble and then it was going fast, but he still decided to jump off. And then he, his dad said he would spank him, but there was not an area on his body that didn't have a bruise or a scrape. There was no area to spank his son, so he refrained. Yes, that's the, that's the kind of members we have at the retreat. Yes, indeed. And we love each one of us. But we're all learning, right? We're all, our relationship is an adventure in learning. And so this morning, I, I want us to kind of dial in to our scriptures I, I want to do this kind of thing that, that it's just going to allow the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 1 to, to speak for themselves, to speak for themselves and allow God to speak for himself. Because over and over again, what we're going to have in this text, six times we're going to have in our text today, we're going to have this idea of what the Father said about the Son, okay? What the Father said about the Son, and the main thing that I want you to come away with this morning is this, to celebrate Christmas is to celebrate the superiority of Christ. That's what we're doing. That there is no other being higher than Jesus. That there is no other being that has more power or more wisdom or more strength or more life. That there is nothing greater, there's, there's nothing better, there's nothing higher to put on the priority list. There is nothing that we should want more. In fact, I believe, and we'll talk about this more at the end, 
But if, that we want, if we want something more than Jesus, that, whatever that is, begins to cloud our vision of who He really is. In other words, if I want you to be something really bad, I will fail to see who you really are. And so when we want Jesus to be something, and we want Jesus to do something so bad, we will never truly understand His identity. So what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to simply go with me on a little journey through this chapter of Scripture and ask ourselves this question, what did God the Father say about God the Son? Because that's what we're dealing with. I want to kind of clear up something here, something that's very hard, right? Let's admit that this is theologically very difficult to say when we look at Jesus and we say that Jesus is God and man at the same time called the hypostatic union. Isn't that fun? Okay? The hypostatic union, two unions coming together, two nature, a man, he's 100% man, he's 100% us, and he's 100% God at the same time. Two natures dwelling in this. But a phrase that kind of helps me, that helps me, and maybe it'll help you, is that when we look at the Father speaking about the Son, it's not as though we have God and Jesus, or the Father and the Son, We have God as Father speaking, and we have God as Son being spoken of. So as we view this thing, and this is not even talking about the Holy Spirit, okay? But as we deal this and we see that we have the Father and we have the Son, so we have God as Father and God as Son. So it's not Father and Son, it's Father as Son, can you look at somebody next to you and say Father and or Father as Son? Can you just help me out with that this morning? Father as Son. Okay? Father as Son. When you think about that, then you start to rephrase things and you start to read. I, I would challenge you over this next couple weeks to go back and read through maybe the Gospel of John and read through that with this kind of new perspective that it's God as son oh not father and but it's as if you would start reading the bible that way i think you would have a better kind of grasp of what it means that jesus is 100 percent god and 100 percent man i think you'll start to get more of that if you take me up on my challenge let me know but let's dive in This first part, when we start looking at verses 1 through 3 in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, you'll notice that he is superior because of his identity, okay? Because of his identity. Notice, and look at these verses with me, please. And you're going to see letters behind some of the words, behind some of the numbers today. That's a way of saying this is the first half of that verse, and then we'll deal with the second half a little bit later, okay? So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2a. A long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, okay? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay. So we've got all these prophets in the Old Testament. We have all of those promises and all of those descriptions about what Messiah would be what the Savior would be, who Jesus would be. We have all of that. But then he says in these last days, we've had his son speak to us. We've had Jesus speak to us. So because this idea of son, 
okay, which we'll, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that in a few moments. I'm really asking you to think today. This is not an easy sermon to process. You may want to grab the podcast and, and listen to it again, but he is the son, therefore, we should really, really be listening. We should really be paying attention because it's Jesus. He's the Son of God. We'll talk more about what that means. Let's unpack this for a moment. He is the Word of God. In other words, we looked at that last week in John chapter 1, that He is the very utterance of God. So when we look at Jesus, whatever Jesus is saying, God is saying it because He's the Word of God. And then we also discover that, that He is a Son in whom, if we move forward to the next verse, starting in verse 2, what we would call verse 2b to 3a, we read this, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Notice that description of Jesus the Son, that he is all of that. And when the writer of the book of Hebrews was writing to these people, he's saying he's not an angel. He's not just another person. He's not just another prophet. He's not one of many. He is one in and of himself. And that who he is in his identity is not up for your debate. His identity is not based on your opinion. His identity is not based upon your experience of him. Because let's face it, sometimes people experience Jesus to be very, very harsh at one point, he calls one of his disciples the devil himself when he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whoa, oh wow. In another place, Jesus comes to people that are saying, we've done all this good stuff, and Jesus says, that's all trash. You don't know me. What? He comes to a rich guy who says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? He has everything. And Jesus says, sell all that you have and give it away to the poor and come follow me. And the guy leaves sad. You see, Jesus says things and does things that if he was not God, he's the worst tyrant of all because he says things that are so dividing. See, I wonder what would happen today if Jesus gave a speech in this kind of way. What would the Twitter feeds start saying? What would the social media start popping off with? Oh, Jesus is so mean. He told that guy to sell everything and go away. That he told Jesus, Jesus told those people who were doing all these wonderful things that he didn't even know him. Wow. But it's this description of Jesus that we need to get our minds around and our, and our hearts around. It is this description of Jesus that we need to allow to shape what we believe to be true about him. That we need to erase all other ideas of him and let this shape our mind and our heart. So he is superior because of his identity, but he is also superior because of the way God the Father describes him. Now we're going to dive into how he did this. 
Starting in the second half of verse 3, we read this. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a much superior, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son today, I have begotten you. Did God ever say that about an angel? No. See, now today, your, your, your issue and mine is not an elevation of angels. I don't think that that's our issue. And so we could really get a pass on this whole text, and you and I, like so many times we, we try to do, sometimes I think subconsciously, at least I do, I try to get myself off the hook, and I try to read this passage and go, oh, those silly people who thought that Jesus was just an angel. I don't think that, so this passage isn't talking to me. I don't, I don't have, these dumb people, I can read this, and that's them, that's they, that's those over there. I don't, I don't believe that Jesus is an angel, therefore I, I, I'm good. The ones that are wrong are over there somewhere. But what have I elevated above Jesus? What is constantly in my heart or in yours that is fighting for that position of lordship over our life? See, what is controlling you right now? What is forming your desires right now? What is forming your sadness, if you have that? What is forming your frustration? What don't you have that you really want to have that you feel like your life is just not complete unless you have that? See, I would say for you and for me, whatever you would place in that, and to be honest with you, sometimes it's my family. I put my family there. And I have to read this text this way. When did God ever say that your family was this description? Oh no, God didn't say You never said that, God, to my family. Sometimes it's you. It's this church. Sometimes you are the source of my frustration. Sometimes you are the source of my excitement. Sometimes you are the source of where I feel good about the way life is going or I feel like life isn't going well. Sometimes I look and go, well, the church is going well, so I feel like my life is going well. Or now, man, this last month has been stinky at the church. There's financial problems. There's people with struggles. Therefore, my life. Sometimes, and pastors will lie to you if they tell you they don't do this. I'll just kind of be honest with you because that's what we should be doing. Is that sometimes pastors, they um, base their identity on their own church. I met a pastor, one of the pastors of Sandals Church, big church, multiple campus, multi-site. Um, oddly enough, I met him out on the mountain bike trails last week. <laughs> Random, I know, but. And uh, we talked about that. We talked about the, the identity and how pastors, sometimes they, they take their church and they say, see my church, this is me. And when it's going well, pastors carry a sense of pride with that, that, that that's horrible and terrible, and usually is the cause of fall of many pastors, okay? And then times other pastors, when things aren't going well, they just, they, they beat themselves up. Well, if my church is no good, then I'm no good. You see what I'm saying? Men, we do this all the time with our jobs. Our job becomes our identity. So when we lose our jobs, we don't know who we are anymore. So did God ever say and describe your job in this way? No. Sometimes it's a relationship. 
that if we don't have this relationship, then I guess I don't have me. So I don't know what that is for you today. I'm pretty sure that it's not angels. I'm pretty confident <laughs> that there isn't anybody in the room today that going, you know, angels are like tops in my book. And Jesus is like, I mean, angels and Jesus is just another angel, so we're good. No, I don't, I don't think any of you are doing that today. But maybe you're like me and you have other things that are continually trying to get in that number one spot that I need to keep going back to this scripture and go look at this description of Jesus. Why would I ever want anything more than him? Well, why would I want to ever put anything else in the place that only he deserves? Because he's this. So he said that to him. Now what was the author doing? The author, and we're not going to go to all these passages, but we're going to make reference to them. If you want to check up on me, then take notes. And, and, and you should. You should check up on me. I, I make mistakes. But when God said this, you are my son, today I have begotten you, the author is quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. He just directly quotes it because they understood that that whole psalm was what's called, what's called a messianic song, psalm. And they would sing about this idea and they would sing this idea that the father has called the future son, called the Messiah, his begotten son. So they're quoting these promises. And then the next one, you have this other idea that the author brings to us that he says, or again, he says, if, excuse me, let's go to, yeah, go to the, right there. I will be a son to him, a father, and he shall be to me a son. He says right there. Did he ever say that about the angels? No. No. He's quoting 1 Chronicles chapter 17 as God is speaking through Nathan the prophet to David about the future king that would come from his line. And he describes him in this way. When God is talking to Nathan through the prophet, or talking to David through Nathan the prophet, remember the beginning, the first verse, long time ago, God spoke to us through the prophets, right? So the example, Nathan to David. The example talking to David about the future king that would come from his line, which they knew to be the Messiah. He says he's this. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Did God ever say that about my job? No. Did he ever say that about any of the students that I teach in the high school? No. Did he say that about our church? No. No. God has only said that about Jesus. So he quotes it from there. A third one is this. In verse 6, he says, and again, to make his point, when he brings the firstborn into the world, notice Christmas, this is what we're talking about, this is, this is this season, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all, the, let all God's angels worship him. See, directly to their thing, he's like, wait a minute, you're putting angels way up here. You have an exaggerated view of angels, and so you're calling Jesus another angel. Well, if Jesus was another angel, why would God tell the angels to worship him? This doesn't make any sense, the author says. You see, if, for me, if I keep putting you in this place and saying all my life is wrapped up in the church, no, wait a minute. God's telling you to worship Jesus, so why should, shouldn't I really be about just simply following Jesus and letting him define what this becomes and what this is? Yeah. You see, and those of us that are in leadership here, 
we got to remember that we're following Jesus and he's defining the church. We don't do what we do based upon if somebody will like it or not. That's poor leadership. So we have to meet together and pray together on a regular basis at our board meetings. And when we talk about leadership strategy and the things going on, what do we do? What is Jesus planned for this? And we follow him in that. And sometimes you're going to like it and sometimes you're going to think we're nuts. That's okay. Sometimes we get it wrong, don't we? So what's he doing there? He's quoting Psalm 97. Okay. Do you see what he's doing? He's talking to these Jews. He's saying, listen, as you're out there, as you're dispersed, and you're thinking these weird things about Jesus, let me go back to the scriptures and define for you who the Father has said this being is, this person is. And we need to constantly do that adjusting in our lives, ladies and gentlemen. We must, because there are so many competing views about Jesus. There are so many competing definitions about what he did and what he is doing that we become very, very confused. And then when tragedy strikes in our life, we want to throw it all away. And we need to go back. And we need to say, wait a minute, what did Jesus say about himself? What did God the Father say about God the Son? And that's my motivation for sharing this with you today. And then we also have number four. Of the angels, he says, look at this, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's Psalm 104, so angels are amazing. They're ministers to us. And I know my brain, I, I, I admit, this sounds weird, this sounds like Hollywood, it sounds like Disneyland. I gotta admit, I, I don't do well with stuff like this, but when I go back to the scriptures and I realize, wait a minute, Wait a minute, the Bible does say that angels exist and minister to us. Uh, that, that, that's a struggle for me because I'm, I'm so like logical, things that I gotta pe- keep my feet on the ground. I don't deal <laughs> with a lot of those kinds of things, but that's a, one that I had to sit with this week and say, Lord, there are, and there are angels that minister to us continually, and we don't even know it. And he says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, he didn't say that about anybody else. He didn't say that about an angel. He simply said that he is the supreme ruler. He is the supreme authority. His kingdom is never going to end. It's never going to stop. He's never going to come up against a term limit. He's never going to be impeached for what that's worth. His kingdom is never going to end. See, I'm buying into that kingdom. And I know over the last week there's been so many things said and now the division that is part of our government has now exploded in the church because of an article in Christianity Today, right? And that the Christianity Today, the the, the major editor of that has said that Trump should be removed from office because of his moral character. That's one line. But then you have a very beloved local pastor just right out of Riverside putting on his Facebook page that he went to the White House because he was invited, Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship, and he's putting all stuff on, on there saying how he supports the president. So here we go. Here we go. A major publication of Christianity, well-reputation, well, it's a good magazine. Read it. It's helpful. Saying one thing, we've got a wonderful pastor 
in the neighboring community, worldwide notoriety, say now President Trump's the way to go. Praise the Lord for him. Do not put him, no matter how much, if you hate him or love him, do not put him in the place of Jesus. Do not. And do not put your opinion in that same place. Because if you love him or hate him, that's your, that's your opinion, and I'm sure you have your reasons. Some of them well-founded, well-studied, wonderful, great, have your opinions, that, that's fine. But he's not Jesus. And he is not worth dividing over in the church. And we can calmly disagree with all of that and love each other no matter where we stand. Because if this divides the church, we are in trouble. Because I've been saying over and over again, the chaos that is our government is a wonderful opportunity for the church to show people how to disagree with one another. It's a wonderful opportunity for the church to speak out and to offer truth and to put our arms around people that we disagree with and say, I love you. And to say, let's continue to drive after truth because the church of all people should be people that are, that are driving after truth. And that's all we seek is truth because we follow and worship the author of truth. And where the truth leads us to change our opinions, we must change our opinions. And where the truth leads us to confirm our opinions, we confirm our opinions. And in some places, as we follow the truth of the word of God, we'll read some things that President Trump says and says that is out of line and you owe that person an apology. And in other things you might say, we'll say, you know what, that, that actually lines up with what Jesus would say. Thank you for protecting that. And we love each other enough that when we sit down with one another and say, man, I love you, but that, that, that's not good. Oh, this is wonderful. But we've got it into our culture that if we agree with one person on one point, then we agree with them on everything. No, we don't. No, we don't. Nor if we disagree with somebody, we don't disagree with them on their whole point. And we can say that about any president, and we should about any government leader, that we sit down and we understand what that leader is saying. We say, you know what? That lines up with the word of God. I'll take that. That's wonderful. I'll support that. Way to go. Ah, no, that, that doesn't line up with the word of God. No, that, that needs to change. I don't supporting that. Not, well, I'm a Democrat, so it came out of the Democrat's mouth, so I'm for it. No, that's stupidity. Oh, that's a Republican said that? I'm a Republican, so I agree with that. That's nonsense. And this whole thing, when they put up on the screen, it should tell you where they are. It should tell you that they are not seeking truth. Not one of them. Not one person in our government is seeking truth. They are simply, or maybe there's one <laughs> or two. So I shouldn't make blanket statements. But I feel in my own heart that it's just, as you watch on the screen, Republicans vote this, Democrats vote that. Who cares about what really happened? It doesn't matter. But we are people of an authoritative book. We are people that follow the author of truth. And sometimes we're going to side on one end of the aisle, and sometimes we're going to jump on over to the other, and a Christian should always be that way. Well, sometimes I'm over here with the Democrats. Man, that was awesome. Sometimes I'm over here with the Republicans. That was awesome. And you should be a follower of Jesus Christ. That should be your mindset. I didn't really mean to go there. But perhaps it needed to be said. And so, as he presses on, let's go to the fifth one. <laughs> you have loved righteousness. This is further the Father speaking of the Son. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Isn't that amazing? So what's he quoting there in those two, in, in the point four and point five? 
he is quoting another psalm, Psalm 104. Now, why would there be so many psalms quoted here? Because that's the songs that they sung. He literally went to their music. The author really, he went and said, what scripture are you singing continually that I know you know? So you know these things. You've read these things. You've sung these things. You've memorized these things. You've believed these things. And he's simply bringing that back to their attention. He also quotes Psalm 45 in that one as well. So let's go to the last one, the sixth one, starting in verse 10. It says, and you, O Lord, this is the Father speaking to the Son. Remember that. This is not the author speaking to God. This is the Father speaking to the Son. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning. In the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. That's Psalm 102. It's an amazing description. And I think in this one is the best place to say to ourselves, you see in this one, very evident, God as Father speaking to God as Son, calling Him Lord, calling Him Creator, calling Him Eternal. That's how the Father is identifying the Son. Now let me clear just a little bit for this. We read the phrase a little bit ago, this word begotten, right? This word begotten. Now, that word begotten is different than created, okay? When you and I create something, we're creating something that has a separate nature than us, okay? There's some things in the, fo- in the, in the fellowship hall, some people have created pies, right? Okay, there's pies in there. Would you raise your hand if you made a pie or brought a pie? Okay, you brought one. Okay, are you a pie? No. Are, are you a pie? No. Now, Sean brought a turkey. We may be able to argue there. We may <laughs> be able to argue there. Turkey, maybe, maybe not. Argue there. Um, my wife brought stuffing. She's not stuffing. See, you, you make these things with a separate nature. See, now, so create is something altogether different than begotten. When we beget something, we're taking something of ourselves and we're pouring that out. It has the same nature. That's a child. See, I and Susan, we begat three children. You see, they come from me. We have the same nature as human beings. We have a lot of the same traits that we inherited from many lines and passing on. We're, we're the same essence. We're the same being. We're not same, we're not, lose our individuality, but you know what I'm meaning. And so when we think about human beings, we all have begotten one another. You read in the genealogy, begot, 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 right? You have this big genealogical record in Genesis chapter 5, begot, 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 begot. But then when you look at God and you go, well... He created Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve begat, 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 begat. And there you got all these peeps around, right? And then you have God. Well, see, he begat Jesus. Jesus is the same essence as the Father. We were created in his image, meaning that we are spiritual beings, okay? 
were created in his image, but Jesus was the only begotten of God. See, now that puts him in a category all by himself now. See, angels were created. You and I created Jesus begotten. And he's the only one. So literally, God took, God the Father took part of himself and made it allow or poured it into flesh, as the Bible would talk about. In Philippians, it says that Jesus emptied himself of all and he poured himself into humanity. He became a human being. That's Christmas. Christmas is when God took part of himself, his own essence, his own nature. He poured it into a flesh. That's called the incarnation. That's John 1.14. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas. That is the true meaning of this whole holiday season is when God took part of himself and begat the Son. It's his own nature. It's him. It's God in the flesh. There's no other being like him. No other being that can be elevated to his position. No other being that we should ever put any desire ahead of him. And when we do put a desire ahead of him, we distort our view of him. So, at the times when I have, and I've done this one real big bad one many years ago, where I disobeyed God and obeyed my wife. And my wife was so mad at me for doing that. Why, did you tell, why didn't you tell me that, she said. Why, why did you put us in this position by rebelling against the known will of God to obey what I wanted to happen? Why did you do that? And I had to repent of that and move things back in a place where we got back to where we were going. You see, because when we put something, see, if I put you, the church, and I put you at number one in my life, and I determine how I feel my life is going based upon how this is going, that, dis- that disturbs my view of Jesus. I can't clearly see Jesus through that lens. And if I place my family as Lord, I just got to do whatever they want me to do. I got to make them happy with me. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. That distorts my view of Jesus. Because in our culture today, and this is the conclusion. I want to pause for a second. Let's go back and look at this. If you, or if you want more than Jesus for Christmas, okay, that very thing will distort your comprehension of his true identity. Now, in thinking about that, we don't elevate angels, do we? We're not doing that. What are we doing today that the author of Hebrews would have to write to us? As I have an ear to the culture and an ear to my Bible, (laughs) have an eye on my culture and an eye in my scripture, I'm seeing that you and I, our culture, is not putting angels at the top spot, but we're putting our own identity, our self-identifying identity in that place. See, you look in the mirror and you say, I am this, therefore God must be. I am this, therefore Jesus must. I am this, therefore the Bible must mean. And we are doing that over and over and over again. I want this, therefore God must. I think this, therefore God must. 
You see, the individual person in the Western world has become his own and her own authority over who they are, over what they are, over what they should have, and over what they should do, and what they should be. We have made ourselves to be God and reinterpreted a view of God that is subsidiary and must serve us or we reject Him. That's the problem that we face as a culture. That's the book that needs to be written. It's the message that needs to be spoken. Because Jesus needs to take that place. And when I wonder and I look into the mirror and I say, who is that? I have to go to the scriptures and say, well, if I'm learning in this passage about who the Son is by what the Father says, and the Father begat the Son and the Father created me, therefore I should go to the Father and ask him, who am I? And that is a journey of understanding yourself. As you would say, who am I, Lord? Have him answer. Go to the Scriptures. What is a man? What is a human being? What is a person? Go there. See what the Father has said about you. And as I said last week, you're tempted and I'm tempted to judge ourselves by our worst days and our best days and where neither. You're not your biggest mistake and you're probably not your wisest moment. You see. And so for Christmas, if you really want to understand this child, then I would say to you, dive into the scriptures. Lock into the Father's description of the Son. Clear a path. Clear everything else out so that you can clearly see who this Jesus is. And I believe that when you start clearly seeing who this Jesus is, you will start clearly seeing who you are. Because that's in large part what he came to talk to you about. Amen. Father, we thank you today for loving us, for taking care of us. Lord, we're so thankful for passages of Scripture like this that um, at one point, Lord, we're tempted to kind of look and say, well, we don't have that problem, therefore, therefore, we can just kind of study this passage and and yay, it's a wonderful history lesson, and, and yay, we can make fun of people that used to think you were an angel, but we're, we're not doing that today. We're actually asking ourselves this question of, if not angels, then what? Maybe it could be all sorts of things. But as we, Lord, have discussed today that in the Scriptures, in the Scriptures, Father, you defined Jesus for us. And Lord, I pray that we would surrender and submit to that identity. And that as we celebrate Christmas, that Father, you would enable us to see very clearly all of the competing ideologies and understandings and worldview. That you would help us to see very clearly the truth and the beauty of this season. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we come to take